<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to a weekend bonus episode of the Tech Meme Ride Home. I'm Brian McCullough. Not long ago, I did a long reads suggestion about Huawei and listener Dexter Tillian got in touch because he's a telecoms analyst and he was actually quoted in the article I shared. Over email, he started to educate me about some of my misconceptions about Huawei. And I was like, dude, don't just school me. Come on the podcast and let's catch everyone up on Huawei and its history. And so today we do that. Where did Huawei come from? How did it get to a place where it's the preeminent 5G infrastructure firm? Is Huawei just a tool of the Chinese government? All of that answered and more. I do apologize for the somewhat poor Skype connection on this episode, but the content here is so good, you won't even notice. My thanks to Dexter Tillian. Let's just start by looking at where Huawei came from. Um, They were founded all the way back in 1987. Um, so this is way before the modern telecom era that you know we're we're talking about today, um, and and at that point China had no homegrown telecoms technology or company or anything, right? Yes, that's right. So they were funny quite a while ago, so over thirty years ago, uh, basically to be one of China's main technological company at the time, but. For a long time, it really didn't do much, especially on a global scale. So it kind of did routers a bit, a bit like Cisco used to do, but a very, very minor player. It only really started, I think, in the early part of the 21st century, so in the 2000s, where it became uh, uh, kind of an important, not an important player straight away, but a player in kind of the network manufacturing uh, side, so the network equipment side. So mostly focusing on emerging markets uh, and at the time, especially in 2000, being kind of the cheap and cheerful solution compared to the big incumbents, which you would say were Ericsson and Nokia at the time. So, yeah, go on. Yeah, well, I, I just want to highlight that because I think it's important. So, it is sort of the like the classic, they're coming in as the cheaper player, so when they're starting to land their first contracts outside of China, it's just initially that they can uh, do it cheaper than Nokia and, and Ericsson can. Um, and then, But then they're also, over time, they, they grow out their quality too, right? That's right. So if we go back a bit in history to try to explain how they became that big. So as I mentioned in the early 2000s, Ericsson and Nokia, the big players, Huawei kind of starting to get into the market. I think it's important to bear in mind and to remember what happened in kind of the European telecoms market. So you could almost argue that before the internet boom, Europe was kind of the leader in a TMT market, so the GSM kind of standard became kind of a borrower standard. Europe did very well. And what we saw in kind of the late 90s, early 2000s, is that in Europe, uh, spectrum auctions went for an awful lot of money. So you had in the UK over 20 billion pounds, which is about 30 billion dollars. In Germany, close to 50 billion euros, which is about the same in dollars. And at the time, European operators, so the incumbent, were saying, yeah, we can afford 
to pay that much that amount of money because people when they're going to be using the internet on their phones they're going to pay an awful lot more so one major european operator say yeah we're going to quadruple or ARPU, which is average per user uh, because people will use the internet if you look at that operator's number from the 2000 and 2019 it doesn't change. It's about 15 euros. So they got it wrong drastically there. But what happened was is that people within that sphere, people within European telecoms were willing to pay an awful lot of money, first of all, for the spectrum, and secondly, for the equipment, which is where kind of Ericsson and Nokia became kind of very, very rich for the three, for the rollout of the 3G networks, while at the same time, Huawei kind of came in and was doing 2G and 3G in emerging market. So, you know, if you, if you have that in mind to see kind of the situation of the network equipment market back in early 2000. If we go back 10 years, so 2009, first 4G network in Sweden and Norway by the same operator, Telia In Sweden, they have to use Ericsson because it's a prestige team and Ericsson couldn't really not have the first 4G network in their own market. But in Norway, they use uh, Huawei. And I think this was... The first time that people realize that Huawei is not simply the cheap and cheerful option, but it is becoming kind of a major player and it can compete on quality as well as on price. And, and what year? And what year was that? That was two thousand nine. Two thousand and nine. So that was. Yeah. So and and there they it's uh, Norway's telecom. So when Norway launches its first four G, they go with Huawei, and that's really Huawei's sort of debut on the world stage. Yeah, and at the same time, the other main operator in, in Norway, Telenor, which is incumbent and partly owned by the government, also decided that it's going to swap out its sold uh, equipment manufacturer and kind of roll out Huawei across all its network uh, within the next two years. So kind of a big push as well there. So, you know, we're in 2009. We've had the major economic crisis in 2008, which kind of has hit many, many companies in many, many industries. And I think at the same time, operators realized that they got it drastically wrong with 3G in terms of how much money they were going to make. So they're not willing to pay as much for 4G equipment as they were with 3G, which means that Ericsson and Nokia can't really rely on getting that amount, the same amount of money. So what do they do? Huawei is coming in. Ericsson tries to diversify. doesn't really work. Nokia is moving into uh, some kind of a consolidation. So they buy Alcatel Lucent which is itself was a, a merger of Arcatel, the French company, and Lucent, an American one. So we're kind of moving into a market which is becoming more and more consolidated with three major players, but one player which is kind of growing in strength, and that's Huawei. And if we go back from 2010 to now, what we've seen is that Huawei, you know, they spend the most money, they've invested a lot in research and development, so they have the most uh, 5G standards. They have the most 5G patents. If you look at 3G and 4G, Nokia and Ericsson have most of the intellectual property. So that's uh, such a player has managed to become a major player in the last 10, 20 years because first Ericsson, maybe and Nokia kind of rested a bit on their laurels based on what happened with 3G. And then with 4G, people realize that Huawei is a key player, not only on price, but also on quality. And it invested to do that R&D, uh, does research and development into the technology, whereas its main two competitors were thinking of something else. So with Nokia doing some consolidation, which takes some time to, to implement it, with Ericsson trying to move into other market and trying to diversify, which, which is a strategy that didn't really work out for them. But that's how, in a stage we're in now, in 2019, Huawei is a main player in what is 
more or less a street player market. You have some minor players, so Samsung does a few things in South Korea. You have NEC also in Japan, which is doing a few things. But on a global level for companies, the equipment, 5G equipment, it's Huawei, Ericsson, and Nokia as the three big players and the three choices for operators worldwide. So can, I, I, I know that you just kind of explained this, um, but can you elucidate a little better for me? Um, because what I don't understand is... Okay, so they, uh, Ericsson and Nokia took their eye off the ball because they were consolidating and they were, you know, it takes time to digest all of the consolidation. And the, but everyone knows that the next step beyond 4G is 5G. So I, what I don't understand is like, they just, they just budgetary wise, they didn't spend as much on R and D and, and, and Huawei went whole hog on R and D. Is it really as simple as that? I just don't understand if the whole industry knows what's coming next, how, as you say, they can take their eye off the ball. Yeah. I mean, the definitely took their, their eyes off the ball. So I think what happened is that you've had the combination of having a major crisis with the financial crisis in 2008 happening at the same time as a new technology with 4G, where uh, those incumbent players, if you want to call it that way, realize that the kind of the golden years of the 2000 were not going to happen again. So they were under pressure, both from the financial sector to make sure that the margin and the profit stay fairly high. So that's why Nokia had to do consolidation. That's why Ericsson actually so strategic move moving into non kind of network uh, markets to try to, to show that they were trying to do something different. While at the same time, you have kind of a longer term strategic plan from Huawei saying, you know, we're going to move very, very strongly into 5G. I think it's also worth bearing in mind that China itself, the country, was fairly late with 4G. So it only launched 4G in 2014, 2015, around the same time that the iPhone got there. But within five years, it's gone from zero to one billion 4G subscriber. So it's moved very, very quickly there as well. So having, I guess, the advantage of having a strong domestic market uh, moving very, very quickly, whereas in, in other countries and in other markets, not as much. And the fact that it could invest far more than its rival which I guess spread themselves a bit too much into doing other things as opposed to looking purely on 5G networks at the time for kind of almost short-term reason to make sure that financial market was still happy with their performances meant that Huawei managed to kind of uh, overlap and overtake them. Um, please uh, put a pin in that um, idea of, of why Huawei has the resources they have. But uh, real quick, so there just is not a... U.S. company that can do 5G infrastructure. There's no one except for maybe small players piece together. There is no U.S. company that can take the lead in this technology. No, there's no major player. So as I was saying earlier, you've got three main players. So you are a Chinese, Ericsson, Swedish, and Nokia, no Finnish. But obviously, they bought other company. One was French and one was American. Lucent was probably right. one of the one. And then Motorola was a main player in the 2000, but then it got sold off and bought out, so it's not a major player at all as well. Right, right. Okay. I do remember all that now. Okay, so um, people suspect, I don't know that we know for sure, but people suspect that one of Huawei's advantages is that the Chinese government itself might be funding or backstopping or, you know, guaranteeing loans or whatever, so allowing them to have uh, an investment war chest that maybe other companies would not. It's possible. I mean, there's no real evidence of it. Uh, obviously, if you're a major Chinese company, 
you will have some kind of relationship with the government. That's the way most business most business is done over there. Uh, but I think it's worth bearing in mind. I mean, we're talking about Huawei and it's become a big geopolitical uh, battle. I think the reason Huawei is also being targeted, from my point of view, is that if you look at all the big Chinese players in the tech side, it's the most international one. So if you look at the Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, and Xiaomi, 80-90% of the revenue come from China. So you can target it as much as you want. You won't really impact them because they've got a Chinese market. Huawei is different in the sense that 50% of its revenue comes from outside of China. So China is a big market for them, obviously, 50% of your of your, of, uh, of, of your entire revenue is pretty big. But if you compare it to other big U.S. players, you know, Apple has about 35-40% in the U.S., I think Amazon is about 45 and 50 Facebook is about the same, Google is about the same. So in terms of share domestically versus international, it's fairly similar to the big U.S. Tech Obviously, they do very, very different things, but I'm just looking at the shares of revenue domestically, internationally, and Huawei is by far the most international player out there. So, almost in a way, the easiest to target, but as you were saying earlier, a weird one to target from a U.S. perspective because there's no direct competition coming from any, any U.S. company in terms of broader geopolitical battle. I'm going to a big AI startup demo day here in the city tomorrow, and I will 100% be decked out in Mack Weldon clothing. Why? Well, Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes, but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. That's their air knit underwear. Crazy, comfortable, but elevated sweatpants, the Ace Collection. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads, the Silver Peak Polo. That's my personal fave. And ultra-soft antimicrobial tees for when you need to stay fresh longer. Their Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code RIDE. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code RIDE. How do you make a password that's strong enough so no one will guess it and it's impossible for you to forget and do it for a hundred different sites and make it so everyone in your company can do the same without ever needing to reset them? Sounds impossible unless you have one password. More than any other product I've ever told you about, I can vouch 1000% for 1Password. I can't live without it. 1Password makes strong security easy for your people and gives you the visibility you need to take action when you need to. Any device, anytime, 1Password lets you securely switch between iPhone, Android, Mac, and PC with convenient features like autofill for quick sign-ins. All you have to remember is the one strong account password that protects everything else. Your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. 1Password's award-winning password manager is trusted by millions of users and over 100,000 businesses from IBM to Slack. It beat out 40 other options to become Wirecutter's top pick for password managers. Right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at 1Password.com slash ride for your growing business. That's two free weeks at 1Password.com slash ride. Don't let security slow your business down. Go to 1Password.com slash ride. Put a, put a pin in that as well, because we'll come back to that at the end. But um, 
So you mentioned earlier that that Huawei actually has more 5G patents than any other firm. Um, so it's kind of like even if you if you want to do 5G at all at this point, at the very least, you're going to have to pay them, right? Because they have these patents. Yes. I mean, even if you don't use their equipment, you're going to use their intellectual property. So you'll pay a licensing fee for whatever they've created, which is you know kind of standard within the industry and a uh, fairly big uh, revenue stream for both Ericsson and Nokia, who I think with 3G and 4G are the two main patent holders. I, I don't remember the number numbers at the top of my head, but if you want to do 5G and if you want to exclude Huawei as a network player, then you're still going to be using some of the integral properties. Therefore, you're still going to be paying them to, uh, to a certain amount. So you are going to have to pay them, but it's still technically possible to build out a 5G uh, network that excludes actual Huawei hardware, right? It is possible, yeah. Okay. But but then again, just by the nature of having those patents, um, Huawei can shape the direction of how the 5G technology evolves anyway, right? To some level, yeah. I mean, because they've got the most intuitive property, so you can, if you're an operator, you can decide to make the decision that it's better to go with a Basically, with a with a company that knows the most about it and is the most advanced about it, and has all the most paid, the more most patent because they will use them better than the other. That's a decision for operators to make. But you know, there was a big battle in terms of standards, in terms of do we do 5G something very drastically different from 3G and 4G, which is what you are we were trying to push because they had the most kind of new patents on that, or do you use a lot of older technology, which is which meant that you would need to use a lot of older parts of the of all the technologies, meaning that Ericsson and Nokia would get most of the licensing. I think we kind of more or less figured out the balance. It's still an ongoing thing. There's still kind of a releases ongoing in terms of 5G services. I mean, 5G is still very new. We don't have the full technology uh, so far, but you are in terms of the pure 5G patents. And ZTE as well, which is also the main Chinese player, they're the one that have kind of created the standard and the patents uh, over there for, for 5G services. So give me the, the state of play. Um, places like Thailand, South Korea, I think maybe India too, they're, they're going ahead and, and just they're signing up Huawei to, to build out their 5G networks, right? Yes. So we've seen, obviously, China is a big market for them. We've seen a lot of uh, countries in the rest of Asia moving on. I mean, you have exception, obviously, Australia, Japan and New Zealand have banned it. So they're kind of the three most developed markets in, in the region after not Huawei. Not so surprising in the case of Japan, because Japan has kind of one domestic company that has been doing network equipment for quite a while. Maybe more surprising in the sense of uh, New, uh, New Japan. Uh, Australia and New Zealand, but they're moving ahead. They have the most contract worldwide. I think they have 35, 40 uh, commercial agreements already. I think Ericsson is about 15, 20, and Nokia is about the same. So they have far more contracts than the others. Uh, it's worth bearing in mind that most operators haven't made a choice yet because in many countries, you know, operators haven't decided when they're going to be launching 5G. So I think we've done some research. So it's only about 25 countries where we see 5G being launched by the end of the year. So it's going to be kind of an ongoing process over the next year. And that's why, in a sense, Europe is almost a battleground in terms of what to do with Huawei. In a sense that uh, Europe, on a geopolitical level, wants to have a good relationship with both the US and China. And also in Europe, 
we have an awful lot of global operators which want to use Huawei, maybe not within Europe itself, but in other in other countries. And obviously, if you're an operator, you'd rather have competition. So you'd rather have the choice of three players as opposed to two. So just to give an example, Orange, which is a French incumbent, not using Huawei in France because they've got a long-term relationship with our catalyst, which is the Nokia, but using them in Spain, using them in Poland, and using them in most of their African subsidiary. Obviously, they won't be launching 5G services in Africa for quite a while yet, but they don't want to be in US bad book in a sense. They still want to be able to be able to use them eventually in those markets. So that's where Europe is kind of caught between the U.S. and China in that in that sense. So, so as you're saying, these European countries, um, these European companies, they're not just doing business in Europe. So they want to be in in Huawei's good graces, so they can play in places like Latin America and and, and Africa. But is there also? Um, I think I read that to a certain degree, there's a lot of these networks that the 4G networks are already Huawei networks, and so it would be like pretty expensive to completely throw the baby out with the bathwater at this point, right? That's also the case. So one thing with Huawei is that its networks uh, are not interoperable, interoperable, in a sense that if you're using Huawei for 4G, you need to use it for 5G. And if you decide to use somebody else for 5G, then you will need to get rid of your Huawei 4G network and use somebody else. So it's obviously, that's, uh, that's an expense in terms of cost, an expense in terms of time. So that's kind of one issue as well that is kind of being considered right now. Uh, so difficult for them. So what we've seen in Europe is that we've always seen kind of a balanced decision. So the European Commission and Germany as well, they come up with something very similar, which is we're not going to ban Huawei right now because there is no actual evidence of them doing anything bad. But we're going to increase scrutiny on security of the network. So that's kind of where the the kind of decision making is going right in Europe. So kind of leaving operators with a choice of what they want to do, but giving them kind of more tasks in order to make sure that the network is secure uh, from any provider, not just targeting Huawei, but obviously Huawei is part of that equation. So just give me your personal take on this, and and I, let's do it in the level of degrees. <laughs> how how likely, the, the most extreme degree is it, in your opinion, that this is all some sort of master plan that the Chinese government decided decades ago. We're we're gonna we're seeing where technology is going. If we bec- if we have a company that uh, creates th- that infrastructure, that will be able to always uh, spy on everyone. Like, how likely, in your opinion, is that in terms of like the worst case scenario? I'm not sure there is a master plan in that sense, but what I would say is that in terms of long term. St- strategic planning, China is far better than Europe and the US has been in terms of kind of technology uh, over the last 10 years. So maybe not there wasn't a master plan at some point, the Chinese Communist Party kind of went in and decided in 10 years time, 5G is going to be big, therefore we need to create a leading company. But, and if you look what it doing with uh, artificial intelligence and other technologies is definitely kind of a longer term strategic thinking that maybe we don't have in Europe and the US yet. So that's probably why they got a bit of an edge in terms of trying to create something or trying to, to create kind of a full technological infrastructure, whereas in Europe and the US, not as much uh, strategic planning. Uh, 
In terms of spying, I don't know. I mean, what I would say about that is that there has been no evidence so far of Huawei spying uh, through their equipment and, you know, giving that kind of data to the Chinese government. So there's been no evidence of that so far. So that's why I'm going to, you know, stand on the being. I mean, I'm not saying there will never be any evidence of that. Right right now, there is none. So in terms of if you want to ban you away from that I guess you would need to provide kind of concrete evidence and we haven't seen it yet right I was gonna say like I, I had read that even um, there some people are saying that the US government who is you know trying to encourage countries to ban Huawei equipment um, people have said well the, the if if there really is a spying issue the gov- the US government hasn't actually given that evidence yet so it's almost like they're they're asking people to trust us and maybe the evidence doesn't exist. I mean, I I don't know exactly that, but if you look at what might be happening in the UK, which is that they won't fully ban it, you could make the argument that if the US had provided the UK with clear and concrete evidence of any spying from Huawei, they would not be allowing Huawei to be part of the net to be part of the network infrastructure, even you know if it's not, that evidence is not public. So if the UK is not uh, it's not a decision that has been kind of fully fully announced yet. I mean, it's causing quite a few commotion in the UK political system right now, with the Defence Secretary having been sacked yesterday for leaking that news. But if there were kind of fully concrete evidence you would see probably European countries looking at that and saying, okay, we're seeing fully conc- you know, concrete evidence of that, therefore we're going to be banning you out of the fact that they're not doing so far does suggest to me, and obviously I don't know the details, but it does suggest to me that the US has not provided that kind of concrete and clear evidence uh, to ban you away for spying activities. So then um, the second degree down, like uh, I guess to what degree are our Western countries just concerned that, well, um, in, in in an extreme emergency in the event of war or something like that, uh, China could just um, lean on Huawei to knock out someone else's infrastructure or denial of service and things like that. And so even though maybe they're not setting out to do that, it's just a happy accident that people would be concerned that China might be tempted to use in certain situations. Yes, I mean, I think the reason there's a big issue with 5G is that 5G is eventually going to be a network that's going to be connecting objects as opposed to connecting humans. So it's going to be connecting everything you can think of. So if you have one company kind of in charge of those networks and, you know, potentially capable of shutting them down, that kind of causes causes an issue. I think I would look at two kind of two things based on that. One is... You know, with an increased amount of connected objects, you know, the the fear of a security is not going to come only from the network side, but from the fact that you have more and more objects being connected. Therefore, you know, you just need one of these objects to be vulnerable for it to kind of basically destroy your network. So the example I always give in terms of cybersecurity is a casino in Las Vegas, which had its iRoller database hacked. And they couldn't figure out why. So they spent a lot of time. They got external consultant coming in. And North Carolina found out that the way the hacker went in was through the newly installed smart thermostat in one of their fish tank. Because that wasn't secure, they could get into the network. And therefore, they could hack into their most important piece of data. 
So if you're going to have 50, 60 billion connected devices connected to one network, obviously there might be some issue in terms of the network itself, but there's going to be some issue in terms of the overall reliability of having so many billions of connected things connected to one particular network. The second thing that goes in terms of you know, the Chinese government potentially leaning onto Huawei. There's obviously that rule in China saying, you know, in case, you know, Chinese company have to help uh, the Chinese government for whatever reason. But you have that in China and, you know, you could almost argue that should it be an issue, Huawei would have to be uh, in regulation of those rules and would have to decide what the Chinese government does. On the other end, you also have in the US something called the Cloud Act. So the Cloud Act was created uh, just a few months ago, after I think the Department of Justice could not get Microsoft to give out data from one of the Othmail server in Ireland, so the US when I was a cloud act, which means that the US security apparatus or kind of national security services can go and ask any American company for data anywhere in the world. And what I has created is that in Germany, the uh, federal police is looking to purchase some body cams and those body cams are coming from Motorola and the best way for them to put that data somewhere is to use AWS. And that has meant that the German uh, kind of data protection agency has said, theoretically, if you're using Motorola and AWS because they're both American company, it means that through the Cloud Act, you US authorities could take the data from the German police. So they kind of had a warning about that like a few weeks ago. So you can almost look at it both ways. Yes, there are rules in China which meant that the Chinese companies have to have the Chinese authorities, but you also have those new rules in the US where the big US companies have also have to help the US authorities. So it's not maybe as clear cut as you would expect and not purely on the Chinese side. All right, well then, um, finally, uh, the third degree on my scale here. How much of this is just um, culture clash? Just the idea that these Western governments and Western tech companies don't like the notion that for the first time a, a Chinese company is at the lead of really, really core technology? I think it's as much a geopolitical clash as it is a cultural clash. So yesterday, I believe the uh, acting defense secretary in the U.S. say that, you know, through Huawei, China is trying to steal its way into global tech dominance. So what we're seeing is almost a fear of China becoming a major player, and not only within tech, but kind of in general. So you can call it a culture crash if you want to, in the sense that we now have a non-Western uh, country coming in and becoming a leader within the next, within the long term, within the tech 10, 15, 20 years, if not earlier than that. And they kind of have fears in terms of, you know, what the model is going to be looking like, uh, what the Chinese government is going to be doing on an international scale compared to what the US has been doing or what Europe has been doing. So there's definitely, uh, you know, a layer of, uh, I don't want to say conflict, but a layer of confrontation or or cooperation in terms of, you know, it's not only comes the Western world leading the way, you know, the big players coming from outside the global West, which has been kind of dominating the world for quite a while, for several centuries now. And, you know, people, some people don't accept it, some people are fearful of it. And Huawei and kind of the 
the technology is almost only one small area of that kind of global battle, if you want to call it that way, or that global change on a geopolitical level, on a global level, where we're not seeing kind of big companies coming from outside the West. 